0: Welcome to North by Nerd West. I'm Emma Platt, and joining me tonight is my life partner, Chris Haig. Hello. Uh, there we go. And uh, tonight, on uh, this episode, we're going to be discussing something that's very precious to me. Uh, and that is, we're going to be discussing the themes in my master's thesis, which is called Beastly Beauties and Beautiful Beasts investigating so-called final girl theory in post-9-11 monster films. Um, I would like to point out that I, not to brag, but I did receive a first first for this thesis. And it, it took me six years to finish my degree due to having my son and getting divorced and things like that. So I did put a lot of hard work into this. Um, so if anyone would like to read the thesis or has any, like, you want to discuss anything, you know, in a critical way, that's not just criticism, then I'd be more than happy to continue that discussion on Twitter or by email. So, bear with me a minute. Um, what I'm going to do is, the thesis is 18,000 words, and obviously I'm not going to have time to do all that tonight, so I'm just going to pick out a few key, key points and tell you how this, where the idea came from and all that kind of thing. So, uh, basically, I... I've always wanted... Since I was about 16 and you always wanted to go and do my PhD and things like that. Um, the idea for my master's thesis actually came about pretty soon as I'd finished my undergrad thesis, which was called Deadbeat. And was about body horror. And I had read a line in a book by Roz Kavenny, which she called Alien a slasher film and called Ripley a final girl. And I completely disagreed with it. Didn't know what she was talking about. But that really got me interested in... The, you know hybridization of character characters across horror subgenres. And I, you know I was already interested in Final Gale Theory and I hadn't written about it yet in a critical manner, but you know, I was I was very, very familiar with it. And I wanted to do something I didn't want to write about body horror anymore. I wanted to move on and I decided to write about monster films and originally the list I was gonna write about was huge it was you know I'm trying to think of things I cut out I cut out splice I was gonna write about that I cut out the host I cut out wreck I cut out loads and basically whittled it down to just writing about three films Jennifer's body the descent and ginger snaps now I'm aware that ginger snaps was released pre 9-11 but I think a lot of the themes and the tones fit in to the post-9-11 cinema. So, what is post-9-11 cinema? Well, clearly it's horror cinema after the events of September 11th, 2001, and the terrorist attacks that took place there. Now, post-9-11 horror is... It's characterised by a lack of hope. And the thing is, cinema has always try to make sense of the world you know it's it's a way that we we look to cinema to help us understand these times and there's actually a quote i'd like to read to you now if you don't mind in an article from october 2001 the new york times said the horror film is just sitting there waiting to deal with this. And it is without it's without surprise that the media were expecting the horror genre to make sense of 9/11. As Paul Wells has stated, the history of horror is essentially a history, a history of anxiety in the 20th century. So, if the 1950s horror was really about the atomic bomb and not about giant ants, then the meaning of horror in the 21st century after 9/11 is as Matt Hills puts it, other people are shit. Heroes die, the bad guys win, and evil can no longer be defeated. Unspeakable, unbeatable horror lurks around every corner. It lurks next door. It's right where you least expect it. You can't beat the bad guys because the bad guys are us. So, that was a very, very, very condensed version of what we're going to be talking about. And one of the themes I would like to really touch upon is duality. of the The duality of these characters. So basically, I was trying to figure out is there a a final girl theory that applies to women in monster films are there characteristics that make women in monster films more likely to survive and yeah there is and spoiler alert (laughs) don't want to spoil the end of the thesis for anyone I know you're all gripped the biggest characteristic that these women have to take on to survive is monstrosity to beat the monster gotta be the monster now, this can be in a physical sense or it can be in a mental uh, mental sense. But women who do not accept this monstrosity during the course of the film will die. So, women, women in horror films usually play the victim. And Robin Wood writes of women's role as victim. He says, "'Filmmakers assume that the audience will be more afraid when women, traditionally the weaker sex, are placed in danger.' and will then more readily identify with the hero-slash-protector. Filmmakers are providing the predominantly male audience with a particular kind of catharsis. So obviously this victimhood we see most predominantly in the slasher genre, which actually has its origins as far back as Psycho from the 1960s, but it wasn't popularised until the late 1970s with films like Friday the 13th. And this is where Clover's final girl theory came from. Chris, do you want to give a quick overview of final girl theory?
1: <laughs> don't mind if I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, so in uh, Men, Women and Chainsaws, Carol J. Clover talked about uh, the concept of the final girl, which is basically that if you, you know, in a slasher movie or a horror movie, if there's a group of people assembled, then the, wo- then the woman will be pretty much always the, l- the last one left, the last one standing. However, in order to do this, she has to meet several attributes. So, generally, she has an androgynous name. Generally, she is less traditionally feminine. So, she might, you know, wear more masculine clothes. She might be more reserved. Uh, might be a bit more stoic. Uh, generally, the whole thing is that, you know, she's a, a virgin. Um, so, it's this very traditional kind of rooted these are the guidelines to survive the horrors, but you've got got to you can't have sex, you can't be you know, a bitch, you've got to be a nice person Um, or you've got to take on these masculine attributes you've got to become more aggressive and cold and you know, more like the killer or in this case more like the monster in order to actually survive Um, yeah
0: so um for those of you who have watched some of these films, you'll be aware that in Neil Marshall's The Descent, there's actually two characters that are positioned as the main characters, and that's Juno and Sarah. Now, um, in her analysis of The Descent, Lisa Lazard states that Juno deviates from particular normative notions of femininity through the film and is often located in masculinized positionings. So, from she, Juno is other. First, she straddles the line between feminine and a masculine, but not exactly existing in a gender neutral space. She's not without gender or without sex. Rather, she sim- simultaneously exhibits qualities of both sexes. She dresses in tight clothes that show, you know, the curves of her body and her cleavage. We know that she has had a sexual relationship with Sarah's husband. So we are not led to think that she is completely masculinized. Rather, that she just has masculine qualities. Now, her behaviour is very masculinised. She is the alpha group, and not just the alpha group. She's almost the alpha male of the group. She will, she's very bullheaded and stubborn. She leads her friends into the unknown and ultimately fatal situation without any thoughts of the potential consequences for completely selfish reasons. She can't comfort Sarah when Sarah is upset over the loss of her family and she doesn't have a traditional gendered role in the, in her, in the film or in her life. Beth's a teacher, Sam is a doctor, i.e. a caregiver, Rebecca is the warrior, and Holly expresses desire for lots of children. We never see Juno caring for any of her friends in this way. And we almost get the sense that she's the hero because she is, she's almost like Laura Croft. You know, she's got the long dark hair, she's got a, we see her taking on the crawlers with a bare hand. She's not, well, h- well, Sarah initially flees. She's not afraid to use violence. And she's the only one of the group who really stands tall. But she's also then uttered by the fact that she had an affair with Sarah's husband. She's a home wrecker, a cheat, a whore. Now the knowledge of this affair feminises Juno. So, this is why I say she exists in this very strange space. She, We know she has sex and she has affection for a, for, you know, a man. She's in a heterosexual relationship. But also, we see her being violent. We see her, you know, being strong. She's the leader. So, this is where she comes to this strange kind of space. So, in typical final girl fashion, this affair, the sex leads towards Juno's doom not only that but the fact that she mortally wounds Beth and leaves leaves her to die once that happens Juno's done for now while Juno continues to exist in this quasi gender neutral boundary space throughout the film and that is the most potential sentence I've ever written in my whole life <laughs> Sarah uh, on the other hand we see her move from from feminine to masculine now we give her a higher level of femininity because she still identifies as a wife and mother even though her child is dead but she is very fragile, she's weak, she's little. She needs a lot of, she needs a lot of help, she needs a lot of support just to get through the day. You know, she's pale, drawn, plain. We see her take a medication before the cave and trip and she requires careful handling by her friends and lots of reassurance. You know, we see her say things like, "Oh, my husband used to say that," and everyone falls silent. They're scared. They're scared of what they're gonna, of what's gonna happen. Now, the cave doesn't change Juno because Juno already possesses the skills she needs to survive in that cave. But Sarah's mind—it's so broken that it's the perfect breeding ground for insanity and madness—and that's exactly what happens if the first half of the film is about a literal descent to the caving system then the second half is about Sarah's descent into savagery and madness Leighton Buzzard writes in Devil's Advocate The Descent if we look at the film as an attempt to cure Sarah through a process of symbolic rebirth this process fails but that's not actually true because Sarah is reborn just not in the way that her friends thought she was going to be she's not cured and she's not fixed After Sarah's mercy killing of Beth, she's immediately attacked by a crawler and in her attempt to flee, falls into a bloody lake. It's in this lake that acts as the cave's monstrous womb that Sarah is reborn. She emerges slowly, bloody and headfirst, silent. She's almost unrecognisable. The outer bulky layers of her clothing have been shed and her hair is partially covering her face. But we see wide, feral eyes. Now of this moment, Linny Blake theorizes that Sarah has become the monstrous mother of the patriarchal imagination at one with the monster and embodying the blood-smeared oneness with them. Sarah is the monstrous mother by the way of her grief over her daughter, but also she's the monstrous offspring of the cave. She was created in the cave. That trauma made her a monster. And now she actively embraces it. Immediately, she kills a crawler child. That was a second thought. She runs through that cavern system, which has acted like a womb. It's nurtured and fed into her insanity, allowing this violence to be reborn in her. Also, she completely knows about she knows about Juno, and when she faces Juno, she shows absolutely no. She, she doesn't outright kill Juno. She does to Juno what Juno did to Beth. She wounds her and leaves her to die. Now, that is a, that's an act of absolutely no mercy. It's Sarah, the avenging mother of the cave... ...that punishes Juno. It's personal. It's cold. But... Sarah is also the instrument for Juno's punishment... ...for existing in a space between genders... ...for living in both worlds. This isn't allowed. She needs to be... She needs to identify as one or the other. But Sarah, of course... Doesn't go unpunished either. She doesn't escape the cave. In fact, there's no room for her in our world anymore. Sarah must now stay in the cave with the monsters. She is now so much alike. So, Chris, on that little uh, quick analysis then, is there anything you'd like to add?
1: I mean, uh, it's weird. I mean, I saw The Descent a few years ago because I... I'd heard a bit about Neil Marshall. I think it was off the back of... Because he did the uh, Game of Thrones uh, Blackwater episode. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, he sounds really good. And I quite liked Doomsday, which is very different. It's quite 80s actiony, mm-hmm. so it's very different to The Descent. Um, I think it is interesting about the various kind of metaphors and the fact that it is kind of like a dark rebirth for Sarah. Because you are right in saying that you know she and Juno are kind of diametrically opposed, because when the film starts off, they're in very different places Juno is in a place of complete security she's in a place of well, my lover may be dead but I'm not, I'm still confident and strong and I'm the leader and everything like that, and Sarah is the complete opposite, she has had her world shattered um, and you know like you said, her friends are very timid around her and they've got to you know, look after her with kind of kid's gloves and everything but it's then when she gets reborn in this blood lake that you see the dynamic shift kind of palpably. Mm. Um, and you get to see stuff mirrored. And I thought it was interesting when you brought up the fact that she kills a child critter. So, in a way, she is. she's Because ha- in her previous kind of life, she had a child taken away from her. This time around, she's actually taking a child. She's taking the life from it. She is killing it. Yeah. Um, And so it's kind of like, the minute that she steps into that bloodlake, it does... does, I I think, in a way, it does save her life, irrevocably. um, It makes her kind of like the dark inverse. I mean, to use like a a Stranger Things analogy, it's like she becomes the upside-down version of herself. She becomes her her own evil twin, in that everything that was once caring of her as a mother figure, as a wife it becomes twisted, it becomes dark and it becomes irrevocably shattered and so she's forced to and kind of doomed to repeat these patterns yeah. but in the the inverse so, she goes, so rather than trying to save and protect a child, you know you said she's now a monster she kills one of the monstrous children rather than trying to help Beth or give Beth a mercy death um, she ends up wounding Juno and leaving Juno to die. And you are right because I think it, there's a difference between the um, UK and US. Yeah, ending the US ends and the-
0: she escapes. Yeah, which which might. Which might yeah. yeah. I mean, but to me, Sarah, Sarah doesn't deserve to escape because she has she's gleefully accepted this monstrosity. She's got nothing mm. left to live. There's nothing for her on the outside of this cave now. If friends yeah. are all yeah. dead. She knows her husband died a cheating bastard. Her daughter's dead. So what's the point? Why not just accept yeah. it? So there's no place for Sarah in our world anymore. How could she po- possibly survive in our world now?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's that... And in a way... all right right, here's one in in a way do you think that's kind of a happy ending for her in that she's found somewhere that she doesn't have to you know in that she can kind of escape her grief yeah in a way in that she can i I wouldn't say she she doesn't have to be you know the grieving mother or anything like that but you know i think yeah i don't
0: think it's a happy ending but i think it's It's a much easier existence for her in a way because she is almost... She's de-evolved, basically, hasn't she? Like I said, she's... It's a descent, a descent into madness, a descent back. Do you know? She's very... Yeah. Yeah. So it's easier because all she has to focus on is survival and she doesn't have to pretend that she's okay and that she's not sad and to remember to take her medication because down in that cave, it's literally just... It's life and death. That's it. That's all that matters. And... It's like when you see that look in her eyes when she looks at Juno and she lets go of Juno's necklace. Yeah. She's yeah. letting Juno oh my, yeah. know. Like, I know you killed Beth, but she doesn't let Juno know that. I know you slept with my husband. And that look in her eyes, that it's not sadness. It's There's pure... There's fire in those eyes. There's pure hatred. Yeah. Yeah. And I... One of my favourite uh, shots from the film is when she screams and then it cuts straight to like a it's um juno juno rebecca and oh the other girl whose name i can't remember and they say they think it's a crawler but it's actually sarah they can't distinguish they Ah. say something like you see them jump and they say hurry up it sounds close or something like that and it's sarah but they don't know that they can't tell the difference anymore And originally, I think when Sarah and Juno meet up again, Sarah runs around the corner and she gives Juno a shock. Juno actually, like, (gasps) jumps back. And she looks up and down and says, what happened to you? But what happened to Sarah was the cave. And incidentally, it's also Juno's fault. Because Juno didn't take them to Boreham Caverns. She decided that they were going to go onto this unexplored... And clearly, she has no idea that it's full of fucking monsters. But it's her own pig-headedness. That, and that's another, that's another reason why Juno has to be punished mm. because the death of everyone in that in that cave is Juno's fault. And like I said, what was interesting to me is that, like I said, Sarah moves from feminine to masculine, from human to monster. Juno's position never changes. You know, like I said, the the knowledge of her affair makes her more female to us, but she is like, she is lit like a like a video game character like a superhero isn't she like the way her are you see like, i remember this one scene and she's like standing Ooh. sideways and you can see like her arms are all toned and her clothes the way clothes fit and like sarah's got like a big bulky fleece on and she's got makeup on and she does she really reminds me of like a laura croft character she's got like the pickaxe in her hand but she's mm. not she's not allowed to exist in the space it's not allowed by the rules of the movie. You pick one or the other. You are not not allowed to be so complex, and that's why you, that's why she's punished.
1: See, I, I, I sort of agree. I mean, the other thing I disagree with is the fact you say that Juno, she doesn't change. Whereas I, I, I would argue a bit in that she undergoes a similar kind of reflection to Sarah. In that you know, obviously, as Sarah's, you know power, if you just want to call it, that grows Juno's diminishes, but I was meaning more because she starts off the film you know, you get, you know, she's very confident and like you said, she's like Lara Croft and Adventure and all that sort of thing and so, while you might be aware that Sarah is technically the final girl, you think, oh well Juno's like yeah, the action you, you, yeah. heroine, she's like Sarah Connor, but the minute it's like about the affair, and the minute she wounds Beth and leaves her a die I think then it's it's like it's flipped. So her skill set doesn't change, her abilities don't change, but the fact that she has now become a a bit of a villain, she's more monstrous than the monsters in a sense. Because you know, I think that they're 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 coming because they're hungry. Hmm. Juno's doing this out of kind of selfishness and arrogance. I think
0: that's that's, it's an interesting point. Um, What I mean is like I think compared to Sarah's transformation it's so stark that you see Juno she does become a little bit like jumpy and especially when she's on her own but yeah. Yeah. I think I think she knows when she kills Beth I think Juno knows there's no going back now no matter what happens there's yeah. Yeah. everything's changed and she clearly doesn't seem to show like she abandoned Sarah after Paul died because she was grieving herself but
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's no going back for Juno either. That's it. She killed a friend. But she didn't even kill a friend. It's Sarah who has to bash Beth's head in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Juno yeah. Just, and she not even leaves her. She. You're left to think did she cover Beth up? Because Beth was covered up when Sarah found her. She Did Juno cover yeah. her up or did Beth do it with herself? Is Juno trying to hide her? Cram- like it, there's a lot of questions but like she's you could easily think she's the hero. She's going to save them all. And yeah, she doesn't.
1: She, Sam. She she, she dooms
0: them. She all. does. She dooms them all. That's yeah. it. And does she do them all? Because is it her masculinized behavior that dooms them all? You know, it, there's, is there no place for that in this feminine group? There's a there's a lot more questions that can be raised about. I think Juno's a really interesting character, um, especially in her relationship to Sarah. And mm. I think I yeah. think it's. It's a good, yeah, it's it's a good um, contrast between the two of them. Um, so, <laughs> moving on, I'm gonna next are gonna talk about Jennifer's Body. Um, if you haven't seen it, it, it stars oh, Megan Fox as a beautiful cheerleader who, through no fault of her own, ends up possessed by a succubus, as you do. So. The two, characters, the, the two main characters are Jennifer and Needy, played by Amanda Seyfried. And Needy is a self-confessed dweeb. Jennifer's the beautiful and popular cheerleader. But they've been friends since they were cha- children. Um, and Needy tells the viewer very early on, sandbox love never dies. But she's aware of the differences between them, questioning what's a babe like her doing with a dweeb like me. But it's actually not until Jennifer is possessed by the flesh-eating succubus that Needy sees Jennifer not only as a monster but what she really is as a person vain, selfish and callous When the truth comes out about Jennifer being possessed Needy actually develops a key characteristic of a slasher final girl and she becomes watchful to the point of the par- to a par- to <laughs> watchful to the point of paranoia but Even though Needy does loads of research on what Jennifer is and how to kill her, she doesn't actually do anything until Jennifer kills Needy's boyfriend. And you can see this, the fact that Jennifer feels quite abandoned by Needy at this point. So then you question, did Needy, did Jennifer kill Chip because she was hungry or did she do it to get back at Needy? And there's a lot of spiteful little, there's a lot of little things in this movie that remind you these are essentially meant to be two teenage girls. What's very, very interesting about Jennifer's body is it uses sex differently as a narrative tool than traditionally we see in the horror genre. Now, while it still holds that same tired warning we've heard millions of times because Jennifer's overtly sexual behaviour draws Nikolai's attention to her, it's also used as a source of power, as a gateway to adulthood and ultimately knowledge. So, as Needy is losing her virginity to her boyfriend, Jennifer is seducing and preparing to kill her next victim Needy's tender and loving first time is juxtaposed against Jennifer's primal sexual violence. As Jennifer's assault begins, Needy sees horrific visions of a bloody gremlin like Jennifer perched on the end of the bed. The walls begin to drip blood and she sees her past victims. Needy losing her virginity, which is another gateway into womanhood, strips her of the naivety that she feels about her friends. She finally truly sees what Jennifer has become and with this revelation ultimately becomes the burden of knowledge that it's needy herself and must put a stop to this evil. So as Jennifer embraces her monstrosity, the cracks in their friendship begin to deepen. In Hell as a Teenage Girl, post-feminist and contemporary teen horror, Martin Fradley writes of the film Female friendship is undone by a combination of jealousy and the individual's individual individual individualistic abuse of supernatural power the level of control Jennifer once held over Needy in fact chip once chip says early on the film you always do what Jennifer tells you to is gone now it's her responsibility to put a stop to this murderous rampage Needy's monstrosity is acquired in two ways firstly by her killing of Jennifer an act that can duly be seen as one of both mercy and revenge and an act that sees Needy committed to a mental institution The second type of monstrosity is a more conventional one. During the final confrontation between the two, Jennifer bites Needy and inadvertently transfers some of her supernatural abilities. Needy kills Jennifer, destroying the demon, but also releasing her friend from her torment. And after using her new abilities to escape the facility, Needy tracks down the band responsible for Jennifer's transformation to exact bloody revenge. While Jennifer is dubbed in some way evil or monstrous from the start of the film, Needy is not. It's her who must take on the terrible burden of killing Jennifer. The sweet dweeb, the audience sees through most of the film, is now gone, replaced by an angry and violent young woman reduced to the label on her file that reads Kicker. Needy, too, embraces this a monstrosity. She accepts it as a part of herself, and once accepted, she can use it as a weapon. Fradley writes that, transformed into the eventual femme castrice, it is Needy who takes up the proto-feminist mantle and uses her abilities to exact revenge on Nikolai and his misogynistic bandmates. Needy is transformed into man's worst nightmare, the castrating woman. Fueled by loneliness and rage, she must punish someone for the horrors that have befallen her, her friends and those she loves. Nikolai, the selfish and fame-obsessed devil worshipper, is the rightful focus of this through his torture and killing of jennifer he has shown no remorse or mercy and while jennifer was never truly innocent not in the way that needy was she does not deserve the horror nikolai inflicts her nikolai punishes jennifer for his sexual behavior the repressive male figure attempting to snuff out female sexuality and it's obviously therefore quite fitting that once jennifer is possessed she uses her sexuality as her weapon um jennifer's body is a bit of a strange one chris because it's it's interesting in that you know jennifer is the monster and we have it she's we see her as the monster but she's she's a victim as well she's still for you know all her bitchy selfish nastiness she's still just you know meant to be a 17 year old girl who is horrifically murdered by and it makes you think like that Nikolai has no idea that this ritual is going to work. He's putting all his faith into the murder of a teenager. I mean, he's a... And you could argue, is Nikolai re- Is he really the monster of the film? And I think, you know, an argument could be made that... I, I do think he is... He's a monster in the film. Mm. But... Needy's monstrosity as well... Like I said, she, she becomes monstrous because she kills Jennifer. She's a murderer. But... It's, it's, a, it's a lot more clean-cut than Sarah's monstrosity. You know, we say Sarah is a monster, but actually, by the end of the film, Needy is fucking levitating off the floor.
1: <laughs> yeah. I just... I, I mean, I, I quite like the film. Um, I watched it on a plane twice. Um, I'm just trying to think. I mean... The thing, I I mean, I do think it's interesting in that because it's Diablo Cody who wrote the film, and obviously she did Juno, which is a fun link to the previous film we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do do think it's interesting how it's more. The film seems to be more kind of commentary on. uh, In a weird way, it almost seems a bit, comment on kind of the double standard that women seem to be pushed into in horror films, in that they're either. the whore, like Jennifer, and whore is in, like, quotation marks, or the virgin, like, needy, yeah. and it is this kind of Madonna-whore complex that does get thrown around a lot. But then, the line starts to get blurred, because, you know, I mean, like you said, Jennifer, she's not the most innocent person, but she's not a bad person. No. She's not, She's, not, you know, and she's very genuine in her kind of affection and friendship of needy, even though, it, I mean, it's a bit Mm, a little bit messed up, but it's still genuine. I think they do still genuinely like each other. I think other.
0: I think she has a genuine, she has a genuine love for needy, but it's not yeah. the yeah. same type of love that she has. It's at the same type of love that needy has for Jennifer. Yeah. I think yeah. I actually think, but when they've thrown barbs at each other at the you know when Jennifer's about to kill Chip. You see yeah. that the the relation the friendship's broken down because it's never changed. Yeah, yeah it's,
1: I mean? kind it's of, never a it evol-
0: stagnant. Yeah. And you can like I said, you can tell there's genuine affection on Needy's part for Jennifer. But Jennifer's affection for Needy seems false because when Jennifer admits to Needy that she's a monster after she tries to seduce it or something. Um she says to her you know, I had to find you. And then she says I could never hurt you because I'm such a good friend. Like that's something that should be rewarded. Like I didn't need you because I'm a really good <laughs> yeah. friend, you know? Yeah. And for and for everything that Needy knows about Jennifer, she doesn't she doesn't want to kill her. She shows no interest in killing her until she kills Chip. She yeah. keeps an eye on her. And their friendship breaks down, but she... You get the sense she doesn't want to hurt her friend, but she has to. Mm. And that's what I say about the sex being a gateway to knowledge, because that... It's after she loses the virginity that Jennifer comes over and confesses to her. And that places the burden on Needy. She's the only one who knows. She's the only one who can do anything about it. And, like you said, Jennifer's a bitch, because <laughs> the scene where Needy says to Chip, Jennifer's a monster, and Chip goes, I know. And she goes, no, no, no. She says, oh, Jennifer's evil. And sh- she goes, no, 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 not high yeah. school evil. I mean, really evil. Yeah. Do you know what I always thought was really yeah. funny? Yeah. So, uh. and you do you do feel sorry for Jennifer. There's a, a bit where, and I am skipping quite a lot around my thesis, because obviously I'm trying to tie as much in I can in such a short space of time. Um. There's a bit, I, I can't remember the quote exactly, where... So there's a quote about, um, like, the evil or the monster that lies behind a false face, basically, and I will I will find this quote, and I will tweet it out, and I will, uh, when the setup goes up, I will tweet out the exact quote and I will reference it properly because I don't want anyone to think that I'm plagiarizing anyone at all. So I yeah, will do yeah. that. But the basic point is it is about, it's talking about the the monster or the horror that lies behind a false face. And one of the scenes I found really interesting is when Jennifer's getting ready for the dance and she's applying makeup but she's crying. And to me, that really spoke to the fact that she's applying this false face, this mask of humanity to go out and feed. And it's like, she doesn't want to feed but she has to yeah. to yeah. survive, and I just found that really interest. I just I thought that scene was not powerful or anything, but she is. She's basically applying this human face to go out and become a monster.
1: Yeah. Do you know what I read and I because some people mention it and thought it was an interesting thing is that in a, way, in a way because of the way like you know the way that Jennifer is and Jennifer needs relationship and everything Jennifer is kind of coded queer in the film. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, she, it, it seems as though Needy is the, like, Jennifer's basically been in love with Needy all these years, and has basically, you know, hidden it and all that sort of thing. But then you were talking, you were talking about, about the scene where she's applying the makeup, and all I could think was, like, if you if you look into, if you see that as kind of queer subtext, she is putting on a false face. She is putting on there like, this, you know, desire of heterosexual, you know, enjoyment and, you know, for male pleasure and everything, but... Yeah, that's not who she is. And I know the, I know the feeding, feeding thing, you know, obviously it's it's the whole idea of like queer as being the other. Mm. So I just I I just thought because so, someone mentioned it I'm really sorry I don't have the sources, but I thought it was just really interesting theory that I floated around yeah. the idea that basically the whole thing is about Two girls, Two girls and one girl's in love with the other, and how it manifests. Um, that's and it's actually like a big allegory. That's
0: really interesting. I've I've actually never read that theory before, so that's that's really really interesting. And of course, um, you know, horror film is all about the other, isn't it? It's about yeah. the unknown. Yeah, exactly. Everything that is not us is other. In it, it's, that's a constant yeah. running theme through it. Um, I've never I've never seen that. The theory about you know it being like you know G- Jennifer being labelled as you know queer per se because yeah. I always yeah. got the sense from that bit that she was it's the only way she knows how to get what she wants from people is with sex. Hmm? Yeah. yeah. Um. But that that'd be really interesting because it could be about you know the the manifestation of the monstrosity. That would be really interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, and in that way, in that way kind of self internalized homophobia. Mm-hmm. The monstrous, monstrous seeing see yourself the as the monster. monster, all that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I'd, oh, I'd, during, during editing, editing, I did so speak to Emma, basically, voice. just because we've been talking about kind of false face and the monstrous um, and everything, um, and for my elbow, which is it's pitiful compared to Emma's Masters. <laughs> <laughs> but i for my a level english literature assignment we got asked to do kind of gothic horror which is awesome cuz i love horror um and it was uh, de Maurier's rebecca and stoker's dracula both of which are awesome books so check them out um and it was basically talking about the way that femininity and feminism and kind of the dichotomy of what it is to be female kind of emerged in gothic horror and it made me think of Dracula obviously in Dracula you have the two I wouldn't say female leads but female characters so you've got Mina Harker who is the wife of Jonathan Harker who is the one who journeys to Transylvania and falls under the thrall of Dracula and then you have her best friend Lucy Westenra who is um I suppose she's like the, the, the Victorian equivalent of the good time girl, you know, she's very flirtatious and fun, and she has two or three different suitors, and she's in love with this one guy and everything um, and as, as as you can probably see coming, Lucy ends up getting attacked and turned into a vampire and eventually killed while Mina, who is still she she's selected, she's not bitten or turned into a vampire, she's chosen to be like Dracula's bride she receives the mark Um, And then in the finale, when he's defeated, she's basically reborn. She's reborn as this kind of cleansed, pure soul. But the whole whole idea that we were talking of, kind of the monstrous, it comes in the fact that when Lucy is killed and bitten, um, she, 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 she dies and then she reappears and she becomes this horrible visage that starts appearing to kids and trying to lure children so she can feed on them. Very similar to kind of Jennifer in a way. And the way it's described in the books is that she um, she looks beautiful and terrible so she's kind of like you know the serpent beneath the rose or whatever kind of you know metaphor or similar you want to use for it. So she it is that kind of mixture of you do have these two female characters who are so opposite. One of whom is, you know, the final girl, the very plain faced girl who adopts elements of the monstrous. She is literally marked by the monster and is set to become a monster, and yet she survives. She doesn't do it through her own intervention, but she does um, make it to the end and is reborn in order to survive the carnage. And then you have Lucy who does take on this kind of monstrous deity role. She is consumed by Dracula. She is consumed, she she is consumed and she has become monstrous. She is both monstrous and beautiful at the same time. She's described in the book as being this beautiful blonde radiant beauty and, you know, it, it's, it's a weird thing. So basically they catch her in her crypt because she dies, in quotation marks, and then they start getting, you know, these haunting appearances where she's got, like, the snarled-up face and everything. Um, So a group of men, her, like, loved ones, decide to put, you know... um, Oh, my God, what's the phrase? Um, To uh, put her out of her misery. That's the phrase. Um, And they stake her, and it's all very dramatic and everything. And while she's being killed, she is, like, monstrous and angry and everything. And then the minute she dies, her face apparently resumes this kind of radiant loveliness even in death, and it's this we- it is a weird way to look at it in the in, like, you know only when you're being viewed from the male thing and when they have control you're, you're you're beautiful, but when you are the monster, when you have become monstrous then, you know, there's something virulent, there's something dark, something just not right, I guess
0: Yeah, and I, I think you know, to kind of like start to wrap it up a bit. Mm. It it it. I think women is women is. <laughs> <laughs> These women take control of their own destiny. They choose to fight. They they don't choose to become monsters, but they accept it. Mm. And that is the difference between that's the difference between Needy and Jennifer. Yeah. That's the difference between Juno and Sarah. This is yeah. a, a survival. And not just in the fact that Jennifer needs to feed. Jennifer's enjoying it. She revels in it. You can tell. She revels in that. Not in the feeding itself. She doesn't enjoy having to go feed, which we say. But she enjoys everything that comes with it. The long, glossy hair. The clear skin. She enjoys mm. that beauty. Whereas Needy, she... Jennifer could have gone after the band. Yeah. She didn't it's needy who even after jennifer's death is still Avenger. sandbox love never dies so um that was kind of a little overview of my master's thesis and um, please be kind if you like i said you've got any you know you want to discuss it or you've got any points to raise please feel free to do so on twitter i'm at the any criticism that is not constructive will be ignored blocked and deleted because like i said this is my baby and I worked hard on it. And that is yeah. only a sm- very small fraction of what I wrote about. But, you know, you got to gotta trim it down a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I have um, just read it tonight very briefly and I'm going to properly read it over the weekend. And it is really awesome. So if you would like to read it or... Chat to Emma about it or be like, Oh yeah, yeah, and this is cool as well and this and all that sort of thing. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh you can find me on Twitter at higher underscore boy. Um I'm not doing my master's thesis in film, although dear God sometimes I really wish I was. Um no, no mine at the moment is so hard. It's so hard. I'm so tired all the time. Um yeah, but I just generally talk about... Uh, I mean, recently it was kind of like Doctor Who and Sensei, and occasionally I'm like, oh yeah, this is a really good pop song, or I'm really psyched about this, or I'll just chat to my friends. So if you want to shoot me a message or say hi or anything like that, that would be much appreciated. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at North by Nerd West. Uh We are on Acast... Uh, we're not on AirCast. We might be on AirCast at some point. Uh, we are on iTunes, though. We are on Blogger... Um, we, you know, we have a Gmail account. So if you want to send us any, you know, nice messages or if you, any uh, suggestions for episodes or anything you want to talk about, uh, you can either send us a message there at northby, northbynerdwestpod at gmail dot or you can just send us uh, a DM on Twitter. Um, be nice though. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's
0: it. So <laughs> uh, yeah, if you have any. You want to chat any academic bullshit, please, please. My brain is melting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or if you want to tweet tweet us us who your favourite final girls are, that'd be pretty awesome. awesome.
0: Just tweet us anything. Except for abuse. Yeah. Give us us some love, and we'll love you too.
1: Yes, we really will. And I promise I won't you. you. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye.